0: This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network.
1: Today on Government Matters, the Defense Intelligence Agency will issue an artificial intelligence strategy to ensure the U.S. can compete on a global scale. We'll ask the CIO where the U.S. stands in the race for an AI advantage. And the Colorado River supplies water to more than 40 million people and millions of acres of farmland but its supply is shrinking. The head of the Bureau of Reclamation explains what her agency is doing to protect that critical resource. Then, some active duty military personnel are struggling to get food on the table. A new report finds that about a quarter of service members have experienced food insecurity. Government Matters starts right now.
0: From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges.
1: This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gurgis. The Defense Intelligence Agency is set to release an AI strategy to sharpen the country's technological edge over its adversaries. Doug Casa is the agency's chief information officer. Doug, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: So before we talk about the strategy, how does the US stack up against China in the national security space?
2: Well, we've seen this throughout history, especially with the advent of the internet, where really it became a race for technology. And this has been going on for decades. And we now find ourselves in the same situation now, Uh, not only in terms of intelligence, but in terms of technology and the networks that we run. And what makes DIA unique in the intelligence community and across the Department of Defense is we are a service provider in many different functions, one being foundational military intelligence. So we provide intelligence on everything around the world to include facilities, to include people, to include intent. And as part of that, we found ourselves in a huge uh, plethora of data that we now have to make sense out of. And one of the initiatives that we have underway is called MARS. And that is our repository for sharing that foundational intelligence across the government. And AI is extremely important for us in that, especially with machine learning, as we have more and more data coming in from around the world as the world becomes more interconnected which we've seen with covid which we've seen with the russia ukraine crisis and part of our ai strategy is making sense of that data and and establishing the infrastructure to actually enable that to get it to our intelligence analysts so let's
1: talk about the strategy itself give us give us an overview of the elements that are in that strategy
2: sure well one is of course again goes back to making sense of data and this is creating the right data standards to actually bring that data in make sense of it, and then share it across the government and with our foreign partners. Another key piece of that is making sure that it's machine readable. More and more, we're now shifting from those uh, inherent functions that have been traditionally done by humans to being done by machines behind the scenes. And that includes data that we get to our targeting systems to be able to make decisions Uh, for conflict and the U.S. government's role in that conflict. So the key of the AI strategy is not only making sure the data is interoperable, but the actual machines reading that data is interoperable.
1: There's also a talent management and that's a huge issue. It is. Recruiting, um, training, what are you doing about that?
2: So just like across the federal government and industry, there is a need for talent and the competition is becoming fierce, of course, not only within the government, but across the entire uh, IT spectrum. For within DIA, uh, workforce experience is one of my main priorities as a CIO, and that's not only bringing in new talent, it's recruiting the talent that we have and keeping them in place. I always joke that we celebrate people leaving a lot when they take a new job, and I wanna move that to the left of actually celebrating people staying. But on top of that, I have a number of new initiatives. One is in 508 of the Rehabilitation Act for supporting employees with disabilities. So it's creating technologies for those that are deaf or hard of hearing or have vision impairments to actually provide them with the technologies to make their work environment more effective. Another piece of that is neurodiverse. Uh, You've seen this probably across a lot of the IT industry and I'm proud to say that in the next couple weeks, we're actually bringing on our first two newer d- neurodiverse hires within the agency. And when I say neurodiverse, these are uh, things like autism um, of making sure we can provide the right accommodations for those staff and make them effective in the workplace, not only within DIA, but across the intelligence community.
1: Let's talk about JWICS. This is the joint worldwide intelligence communication system. It's, um, it's the government's network for, for sharing and viewing top secret uh, intelligence. You announced a modernization plan about a year ago How's that going? Where are you right now?
2: Yeah, so JWICS is essentially the internet superhighway for top secret information across the government. And so it's that highway that connects all of the agencies together. And when I spoke about AI and information sharing and data sharing, JWICS is what enables that. It also enables access to the new cloud services that we're looking to take advantage of across the community, but part of that is the refresh of that technology, that underlying foundation that connects all of the sites across the IC and DOD on the top secret fabric all over the world. And this,
1: this was created in the 90s. It so was. It's due yes. for a modernization. It is.
2: So we've, we've passed our 30 year anniversary, so the focus is on that tech refresh, but it's also on the cybersecurity. We're in a different realm now. Uh, to where our cyber threats have changed. And a lot of this is focusing on that zero trust environment. So it's knowing everything and everyone on our networks. So that's not only replacing the hardware, it's also putting the right software and technologies in place to have us with the ability to monitor that at any time, 24 seven, every second of the
1: day. And you mentioned the cloud. The DOD is moving uh, towards cloud computing. How does that improve collaboration within the larger intelligence community? Well, it's,
2: it's twofold. One, uh, many of our business systems within the intelligence community, so think things like HR systems or financial systems, have moved to cloud services. As we become more integrated as an IC, making sure that those systems interconnect has become more critical than ever. And now, as we move a lot of those into cloud services, that's where our focus has been. And now we're extending that also with the Department of Defense. And so it goes beyond just those business systems, but also our mission systems of moving into those into the cloud to create those, that interoperability. Where we provide a unique role in DIA is through JWICS on the top secret fabric, we're connecting all of those clouds together. And so now this transitions from a partnership with industry to identify where those cloud access points need to be.
1: There was an announcement recently about the ability to share top secret information with foreign intelligence um, authorities. Tell me about that. What What are the unique challenges surrounding that capability?
2: So with DIA, we, we are designated by the Director of National Intelligence as a service provider for our Five Eye partners. So that's UK, Canada, New Zealand, and the United States. On top of that, uh 5 Eye, we also provide international systems with other partners beyond just those 5i um, sets and with that traditionally over the past few years especially when we first started jwix 30 years ago that need didn't exist like it has been with the russia ukraine crisis or with covid everything was developed as a u.s only repository now as the world has become more interconnected we're revamping our approach and developing systems with that international connectivity in mind
1: all right well doug nice to talk to you thanks so much for joining us
2: thank you glad to be here
1: coming next the bureau of reclamation manages and protects water for millions of americans the head of the agency joins us to discuss what's it doing to combat the dire effects of drought the lower basin of the colorado river is now operating in a tier two shortage condition for the first time ever That means states like Arizona and Nevada must now reduce their consumption of the river's water. Camille Kalimlim-Tuton is the commissioner for the Bureau of Reclamation. Camille, welcome to the program.
3: Thank you for having me here today. So explain the
1: importance of the Colorado River to the West.
3: The Colorado River starts in Wyoming and ends in Mexico. 40 million people rely on this resource, as well as uh, millions of acres of farmland that are used in the Colorado River system. And so as far as the values we have in the Colorado River system, the 40 million Americans, the tribes that call it their home, as well as the ecosystem like the Grand Canyon are part of the Colorado River Basin.
1: So what's the current drought uh, situation like? How bad is it?
3: So we are getting a reprieve at the moment with these rains that we're seeing, but it doesn't take away the years, if not decades, of drought. What we're seeing across the Colorado River Basin and across the west is that snow is falling at higher elevations, it's hotter, it's melting sooner, and the soils are dry. And so that means that the water is not making it into our rivers and reservoirs. When you couple that with low reservoirs, you have a situation where the hydrology and our bank accounts in the form of our reservoirs are low and we need to look at what we can do about it.
1: So are you mandating um, mandatory cutbacks in in water usage?
3: So what we're looking at from the Biden-Harris administration is first relying on our partnerships, working with basin states, working with the tribes, working with the country of Mexico on how we can find a consensus solution to be able to manage the river. We're utilizing the significant resources that President Biden has provided through the bipartisan infrastructure law, as well as the Inflation Reduction Act, that's a $13 billion investment in the Bureau of Reclamation. We are a $1.5 billion agency annually. And so that is a generational investment to allow for sustainability. And finally, we're looking at our actions, our operations. So that should the hydrology demand that we act, that we have the tools available to us.
1: So what happens if not enough is done? What, what, is, what does that mean? What, what could happen?
3: Well, what we're watching right now is the hydrology. And in being able to do that, it allows you to see what the, the system looks like. But as we talked about already, we're starting from a low point with the reservoirs. And so what we're doing now is looking at and having conversations about what the operations can be to be ensure that we can move the water where we need to. This water's moving long distances, As we said, it started in Wyoming, it ends in Mexico. And so that requires a lot of collaboration and communication among all the basin states and stakeholders.
1: You, uh, last fall you visited some impacted areas. Mm -hmm.
3: What were people telling you? Well, I think, you know, what is really important about this and why we're talking about the actions is 40 million people depend on this resource. Farmers are worried about their ability to, to grow crops and in turn that feeds America. What's really interesting about the Bureau of Reclamation is we are from and live in these communities that we serve. So these are our neighbors, these are our families, and they're worried. Um, But I am confident in the investment of our resources as well as in working as a whole of government and with Congress we can find solutions to to a path forward for all of those Americans who depend on this resource.
1: You mentioned Mexico. Um, So there's that international component there. How are you working with the government of Mexico on this?
3: So we have a treaty with Mexico uh, on how we work together on the Colorado River. Um, We are in constant communication with the International Boundary Water Commission, which is part of the State Department, and having conversations. But most importantly, as we see the informations, um, as we see the science, as we see the hydrology, we are also having those conversations alongside our partners in Mexico. So we're all on the same page as far as what's happening on the ground. I wonder
1: what the the short-term and the long-term prognosis is.
3: Are we going to be
1: continuing to see these drought conditions and and these dire conditions for the Colorado River, or are you hopeful that things will turn around?
3: The science is showing us that the hydrology is drier. And so what we're able to do, especially with investments in the bipartisan infrastructure law, $8.3 billion, half of that um, 1.6 billion which is 8.3 over five years we've spent in the Colorado River Basin investing in making infrastructure better water recycling enough for the city of San Francisco um, so what we're looking at is letting the science lead working with our partners to communicate our actions but also making significant investments to be able to have long-term sustainability in operating our systems. But in the
1: short term, there does need to be um, changes to how people live as far as watering their lawns or having swimming pools, things like that.
3: Every drop counts. So whether it's in cities to remove ornamental turf, whether it's in farming practices so that you're able to be more efficient with your irrigation use, all that water in the system is for everybody. And so all of the efforts together, and we have the resources to bring to those efforts, help to find a more sustainable path in the Colorado River system. And
1: just wrapping up, you know, the, the Bureau turns 120 years old this year. How has its mission changed? I,
3: I would imagine things are pretty different now. When we were founded 120 years ago, it was to be able to reclaim the West. Now we're the largest water deliverer in the nation and provide enough power for three and a half million homes. We take that mission seriously. And I'm exceptionally proud that part of that too is not just the West, but in supporting the ecosystems and economies of the entire country. Camille, thanks so much for joining us. Nice to talk to you. Thank you very much for the time. The Defense Department wants to know why
1: about 25% of service members are struggling to put food on the table. Still ahead on government matters, we'll talk about food insecurity in the military. We'll be right back. CONGRESS HAS DIRECTED THE SECRETARY OF DEFENSE TO REPORT ON FOOD INSECURITY AMONG SERVICE MEMBERS AND THEIR DEPENDENTS. THE SECRETARY'S OFFICE ASKED THE RAND CORPORATION TO PROVIDE SOME RESEARCH ON THAT ISSUE. TOM TRAIL IS A SENIOR BEHAVIORAL SCIENTIST AT RAND AND CONTRIBUTED TO THE REPORT. TOM, WELCOME TO THE PROGRAM. THANK YOU. YOU KNOW, IT'S SHOCKING THAT AMERICAN SERVICE MEMBERS ARE EXPERIENCING FOOD INSECURITY. HAS THIS BEEN A PROBLEM FOR A WHILE OR IS THIS NEW?
4: YOU KNOW, IT'S... There have been reports of it for quite a while, actually, back in the 90s um, that people used to talk about how there were service members on food stamps. Um, So it's been a problem for a while, but it crops up every once in a while as a a more major issue.
1: So how are you defining food insecure for the purposes of this report?
4: So the Department of Agriculture has has a definition, and their formal definition is the consistent ability to access food for a healthy lifestyle and how that's measured typically is through survey research so survey questions and about your financial ability to access food so you know, have you ever bought uh, in the past year, bought food but didn't have enough to make it through the month and couldn't afford to buy more? Have you had to skip meals because you couldn't afford to buy enough food, et cetera, questions like that. So it's really a financial issue in the survey questions, which is what we looked at.
1: So how do you go about getting this data? Do you simply ask people these questions? Is It's is it self-reporting?
4: It's self-reported, yes. So the data we used actually for the study uh, were collected by the Department of Defense. Uh, They have a status of forces survey they do every two years of service members. Uh, They try to get a representative sample of service members so you can say that this percentage represents the service as a whole. Uh, And so we use those data where they ask these questions on their survey.
1: Let's uh, break down some of the data. You found that food insecure members uh, were more likely to be a racial or ethnic minority. Yes. What would cause that?
4: You know, it's really hard to tell. Uh, it was really hard to tell in general what caused the uh, food insecurity among service members, but it's pretty high. It's 26% for the force as a whole, and that's compared to 9% for civilians who we matched on similar, you know, service members tend to be male, uh, they tend to be younger. So if you look at that same population in the civilian world, the food insecurity is about 9%, but in the military, it's about
1: 26%. Which is really. I mean, that's a, lot of that's a lot of people that are saying that we don't have access to, to good, healthy food. You also found that it was more people, you know, a higher percentage, I should say, living on post mm-hmm. rather than off, which seems counterintuitive because on post you've got access to, you know, cafeteria or, uh, or, you know, you've got access.
4: Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things that could be going on there and it's unfortunate problem with survey data is like there's only so much you can know um but um for example it could be that they were on post in temporary housing while they were waiting for uh you know their permanent like housing like a rental um that happens a lot you're staying in a hotel you accumulate a lot of expenses that you do get reimbursed for but it takes a long time to get reimbursed for that so you're spending your own money you might run out of money
1: Did you find um, that service members were using those federal food assistance programs like SNAP?
4: So not SNAP, no. Um, it, not very many service members use SNAP, and uh, not very many qualify for SNAP, actually, because they count your basic allowance for housing, which is what the military pays service members who live off post to afford their housing. So if you live on post, you know your 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 housing is paid for by the military, maybe in barracks or whatever. But if you live off post, the, they give you a basic allowance for housing. Um, but they count that as income when they look at your qualifications for SNAP. So not very many people qualify. A lot more uh, families, uh, military families, uh, used WIC. So that's a women, infants, and children's program where they provide a voucher to purchase healthy food if you have a young kid. Uh, a lot more used WIC than than SNAP.
1: And community food pantries as well. And
4: pantries as well, yes ma'am.
1: The Congress has requested an assessment of um, the possibility of a monthly basic needs allowance. Mm-hmm. How would that work?
4: So that uh, is actually, um, still being negotiated a little bit so it's uh to raise the service members pay up to 130 percent of the federal poverty level was the original goal i understand that they've recently passed legislation to raise it up to 150 percent of federal poverty level and the federal poverty level takes into account the number of people in your household for example and what your household income is um but the initial um it all depends on whether you count that basic allowance for housing. So if you count that as income, very few people qualify. Uh, and so it's, in our report, it was around 1,000. I think in congressional, like when they actually, the Department of Defense looked at it, it was a few hundred. Uh, if you don't count basic allowance for housing as income, then it moves up into the tens of thousands of people who would qualify.
1: Is there a consensus as to whether or not that would help with food insecurity?
4: It really varies on who you talk to. Um, So the questions that you look at are all financial questions. So you would think that providing additional income would help with that. Um, But it sometimes depends on whether that um, you're dealing with like a food insecurity that is an acute incident so you know you moved you paid for your own move you spent a lot of money out of pocket so you ran out of money for that month and then you got reimbursed for it later but you didn't have enough that month um, so then it may not help as much as if it's a chronic issue where you're just having difficulty paying your bills because you live in a high cost of living area or you choose to live in a community to get a better school for your kid for example so you're paying more
1: And just briefly what happens next are are you going to be making recommendations
4: so it's really up to congress now about the basic needs allowance and how that's going to be implemented and what is what the levels are going to be and how the department of defense define decides to define that Uh, we're doing additional studies to try to figure out what some of these issues are and why on post for example housing uh, people have uh, greater food insecurity it doesn't make a lot of sense why uh, racial ethnic minorities have more food insecurity it doesn't make a lot of sense when you look at pay all
1: right well tom thanks so much nice to talk to you
4: nice talking to you thank you
1: don't forget if you miss an episode of government matters it's at govmatters.tv you can get a preview and a recap of each show when you sign up for our daily newsletters you can sign up for our email list on the homepage. we'll be back in two minutes That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10:30 on WJLA 24/7 news and Sunday mornings at 10:30 on seven news to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gargas
0: Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor Hughes Network Systems
1: I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government?
5: What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has as we've known them for a lot of years, have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber, and, uh, and satellite, of course.
1: Well tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5 because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service.
5: It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016 and even an earlier version of it, Gen which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite